I'm Jess. I'm August. I'm Carl. And I'm Afi. Welcome to The Periphery. Um, today, we are talking with one of my favorite professors I've had at Stanford, Professor Daphne Keller. Uh, she is director of the Stanford Cyber Policy Center uh, program on platform regulation. And today, we are going to talk content moderation. Um, but before we get there, hello, Professor Keller. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, did you want to start just kind of giving a, a little bit of background about, you know, what makes you kind of like the leading expert on these issues? <laughs> well, I, I, I won't endorse that characterization, <laughs> but you can quote uh, me on so I, I was a lawyer at Google for 10 years, including being the associate general counsel in charge of web search. Um, and so I saw a lot of really interesting questions come up where governments wanted Google to take down content or people other than governments did um, and, and dealt with laws all over the world that, that affected that. And I moved to Stanford in 2015 to work on those same set of laws. And, and it's really, you know, it's not the laws about what speech is prohibited, which really varies from country to country. It's the laws about if you're going to outsource to private companies the job of policing that speech, how do you do that? Like, what's the the mechanism that avoids bad unintended consequences? I think uh, maybe a good starting point is... YouTube filters, uh, according to Keller, uh, which is also according to YouTube, it's public knowledge, you can look this up, one billion pieces of content. Uh, was it a year? Or daily? It was, no, a, it was, it was pretty, a quarter. It was last quarter. One quarter? It was one quarter, a billion comments wow. on one platform, sort of one company. I, I think I read recently that YouTube took down over a billion comments last quarter. <laughs> So that's just YouTube, just comments, just one quarter. Which is interesting for one, like in one regard, because I, when I think about content moderation, I don't think about the comments, you know? Right. I mean, I guess for YouTube, there's not beyond videos and comments. Like that's about it that you would be concerned with. Yeah. On Facebook, there's probably a billion different kinds of things. Events, you know, like we had fake events during the 2016 election, of course, Mm. uh, that brought opposite sides together. Um, And then you have... All these other forms of interaction. So I guess like the more p- complicated your platform is, the harder it is to moderate or the more kinds of content that you would have to uh, watch over and have people who are somewhat experts on. But I think this touches on a broader point, which is like our conversation was ke- with Keller was about a very unprecedented problem, which is that we have huge platforms that pool a bunch of information from millions and millions of people. You know, almost every American is somehow involved in these platforms and their speech is there, uh, the information they receive is there. And yet there is no way technically or uh, from a policy perspective to actually moderate that content and make sure that all that content is legal, that that content doesn't violate people's copyrights, that, that it doesn't defame people, that it isn't just dangerous misinformation that we deem as a society to be bad for us, like Russian disinformation during an election. And the reason for that comes back to like what the platforms originally were intended to be, which is like they're they're not held to the same media standards because they weren't supposed to be media. <laughs> right. But like, no, they, they, I are. Mean, they are. Yeah. They, are they very much are. If anything, even if we classify them as not media, media depends on them for their lifeblood. Well, okay, because my take on content moderation has become much more sympathetic to these platforms, given you know, you know, I took college class and you know the perspective of. It is not easy to give people the platform they're looking for when everyone wants a different platform. And at the same time, everyone's almost dependent on these platforms. She was talking about, you know, how Facebook made that one move to uh, get rid of news because they didn't want to be news. They didn't want to be news. And then that fundamentally 
affected the bottom lines of all these news platforms. Probably about the same time that YouTube was cranking up the news component of what they showed users, Facebook was cranking it down because there was all this criticism after the 2016 election about political content and fake news uh, being presented to users. And Facebook, at least this was their public messaging that, you know, they could have had other other reasons. But Facebook said, OK, we're going to dial down how much news people see, even if it's friends and family sharing it and dial up how much content is just regular friends and, you know, baby pictures, friends and family content. Um, and for news publications that depended on Facebook for traffic, <laughs> that was a huge problem. <laughs> you know, they had reshaped their, you know, their business models and, and their website technical implementation and, and so forth. Independence on Facebook, bringing them traffic. And now suddenly that changed. Um, so, yeah, you can't serve all of those functions at once. And whichever one you pick can have real downsides. My, I remember having a debate with some of our classmates uh, about you know, what if, what if this is the best that these platforms can look like? Mm -hmm. And Jess, you like had Keller talk about this one quote that she had on her Twitter account. I sort of was like stalking you online before this interview. And um, I found your Twitter account and you have like this great tweet that you have pinned. And if you don't mind, I would like to read it and I would like you to explain <laughs> what it means. You say... We imagine that platforms can bring the whole sprawling chaos of human behavior into compliance with the law, make our lives policeable and policed to a degree no government in history could have imagined. Not only do we seem to think it's possible, we think it's a good idea. And then in your comments, you say, I'm using the first person plural in confusing ways. When I say we, I don't mean you. And some of the time I don't mean me. <laughs> so I just want to know, like, what do you, what, what? <laughs> Well, first of all, the the you there uh, is is a particular person. It's Mike Godwin, uh, the coiner of Godwin's Law, which is about the probability of any internet conversation turning into accusations of Nazism as you know time goes on. Um, so I I wasn't trying to put words in Mike Godwin's mouth specifically, um, but I I think there is a collective sense right now that. All of this misbehavior on the internet can be policed, you know, if only platforms would do the right thing. And I think in a way that reflects our failure to grapple with just how different human communication is now that now that the internet has arrived. You know, um, things that we would once have muttered to a friend in a bar or heard in a sermon in a church or passed as a written note to our friends in grade school, like all those things now are digital and they're sitting on a privately owned server somewhere. And so, you know, the ephemeral becomes permanent and the local becomes global and things West are constrained. What's that? West Elm Caleb is like this TikTok trend of some girl who exactly. got ghosted by a guy. And now West Elm Caleb's Hinge account is a global phenomenon that companies are jumping in on to advertise the fact that they're not West Elm Caleb. <laughs> See, I, this is this is like a perfect internet thing. I don't even know who West Elm Caleb is, but I know that people have very strong opinions oh, about it. strong. Very strong. <laughs> um. Yeah, but, you know, d because these things are now policeable, you know, they're, they're, 
they're sitting on servers. We can check them all. And by the way, because the servers are owned by private companies and they're not constrained by the First, First Amendment, so they can censor in ways that governments can't, and they're not constrained by the Fourth Amendment, so they can surveil in ways that governments can't, that just opens all kinds of doors toward regulating human speech and behavior in ways nobody ever conceived of before. And, you know, COVID has pushed us even further in that direction because now everything we do is online. Like there's less and less space outside the the regulable world of, of the internet. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think it's early days. You know, I, I think we have not worked through how governance should work and how human rights or constitutional rights should work in this new framework. And this is what gets at the debate I was having with my classmates. You know, a lot of these issues are not really content moderation issues. I mean, they come through in content moderation, but people are putting this out there. People are saying this, people are spreading this. And people are spreading this for a region that has nothing to do with technology. They're spreading this for reasons that have to do with their identity, that have to do with their economic situations, and that just have to do with being a human, and which is being you know, susceptible to like lies. It's being susceptible to narratives. It's being um, motivated and driven with maybe not necessarily the most pure intentions. Mm -hmm. And I, we're looking at these platforms often as the ones who should and must uh, uh, make everyone <laughs> live in the society that we that we view as perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of people being like. Um, gullible or liking to gossip, like the question is whether platforms think that's an asset or a liability. And I think that Keller's point is like, it depends on the time, like it depends on the timeline. <laughs> because specifically at the time that Facebook decided it was a legal liability, that's when YouTube decided that it was like their moral responsibility to start like carrying news content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, and you know, this is a um, very uh, important question, but it's, it's also a legal question that's been tested in court, which is what do we do and how do we feel about amplification? You know, it's true that disinformation, people have lied since people have talked and, um, you know, and people have tried to fool or deceive or just at least use and leverage the control of information to influence the behavior. Santa of Claus. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> clearly. Delvey. For anybody that just watched the Anna Delvey Netflix, Netflix docuseries, <laughs> the, defend, the, uh, the public defender. His closing statement said there's a little bit of Anna Delvey in all of us. We all lie huh. all the time. Very wise. Very wise. I mean, like, obviously Santa Claus, you know, like that's like a total myth. I, to, I just to, want to, before we get into this, con, uh, you know, trigger warning for all of our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're below, if you're below the age of like seven. Yeah. Seven. If you're below the age of seven, uh, you know, just, just, you know, we're just, we're just, we're just joking. If we're, you're we're, older we're, than seven and you don't know. Yeah. Well, then uh, we've got, boy, do we have some news for you. Uh, you know, it's, but but more to the point is, yes, people have been lying and trying to use information as a tool for power all the time. Um, but what do we, what do, how do we feel about those kinds of messages and also our, you know, kind of frail psychology that's vulnerable to these messages? Uh, what do we, how do we feel when suddenly we multiply that by a million? You know, how, how, do, how do we feel when suddenly we, we, we ensure that those messages will never be forgotten? And that they will always spread and that they'll spread particularly based on certain psychological tendencies that are unique to individuals. And that, I mean, has been argued in court. There was a case called Gonzalez versus, versus Google where they argued that, yes, ISIS was the one who 
pro uh, who propagated terroristic messages, uh, you know, radicalizing content on Facebook and Google. Um, but there's something to the amplification, to the multiplication of this communicate uh, of this information power that actually makes the platforms something more like a creator rather than a publisher. And that, of course, is the legal dispute is like Section 230 uh, immunized publishing of this kind of content because, you know, it's they, they, that a publisher shouldn't be treated as a creator. But what happens when you're actually a creator and what happens when we think that amplification is a form of creation? The third pillar of U.S. Um platform speech regulation is CDA 230. And it, in a way, you can think of it as um, responding to that problem, <laughs> you know, saying we don't want to have platforms just take things down anytime there's an accusation. But but also the people who drafted it, um, uh, now Senator Cox and, sorry, now Senator Wyden and then Senator Cox, um, were quite explicit then, and they keep saying it now, they're both still around and talking about this, that they also wanted to have platforms um, free to do content moderation, free to set their own rules and enforce them and not worry that they were get, going to get in trouble. Um, and sort of to, to achieve that, they both put in a provision saying platforms are immune when they take down speech. You can't sue them for taking down your speech. But also, platforms are not liable for um, illegal content that their users post if it violates things like defamation law. You know, it still doesn't create an immunity for the federal criminal law or copyright, those other things we talked about. And that the reasoning behind that second part is there had been a pair of cases where one platform that held itself out as just an open, neutral place where anyone could come talk they were sued for defamation and the court said, no, I don't think you're liable because you weren't the editor of this speech. And another platform that held itself out as family friendly and said, we're going to enforce some rules, got sued. And the court said, oh, you look like an editor to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I am going to hold you liable because you were undertaking to look at and, you know, try to call out bad content on your platform. And Congress really, they didn't like that set of incentives. They, they wanted to create immunities that would um, make it possible for platforms to go out and, and do content moderation, but also make it possible for them to take a very pro-free expression approach and, and leave things up if, if they wanted to. Now, this, of course, was passed in a context uh, of much less consolidation. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone expected that so much of the world's speech would be mediated by a very, very small number of companies back when this law was passed. And as Keller pointed out, I mean, Congress's protections for these content moderators as such and not as editors that came before really the realization of how consolidated the digital marketplace was. That's right. I mean, maybe Wyden and Cox, the creators of 230, they would really come, maybe, although they still defend it to this day, maybe they think again, if they could somehow back in the 1990s see into the future and realize, wait a minute, all of our information is really going to be controlled by about three different platforms, three or four, roughly, yeah. depending on your function. Um, yeah. And everyone is going to be on it. When we started this podcast, we were... We were concerned with the, the fact that we're entering a whole new world of new tools that we don't really understand. We still don't really understand them. Like, we're still learning what is Twitter and what is its utility. We're still learning what is YouTube and what is its utility. And we just don't know. And we're, 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 we're kind of, like, doing it as we go. And, you know, it, it, in some respects, it's kind of 
admirable that we even had these efforts of these forward-looking laws coming into effect. Mm-hmm. I've been just been thinking about the whole context politically in addressing these things. Mm-hmm. Everyone has these motives. And if we're looking at America, we are not passing anything. <laughs> we're not going to pass anything. We're not going to address anything. We're just going to fight about it right. to whip up a, to whip up um, a coalition to get people in the office to maybe do something, probably do nothing. Mm-hmm. And then you look at European uh, Europe in general, the Council of Europe, the European Union. Mm-hmm. They're so productive in learning and analyzing and really nailing down what is the actual problem here. You know, like as Keller said, it's a shot in the dark. We are oftentimes regulating things that we don't really know about. We we don't really understand what their impacts are on people. We don't really understand how they affect our thinking, how they affect our habits, how they affect our psychologies. You know, in the wake of the 2016 election, a bunch of funding flowed into researching online disinformation. So a lot of people have been trying to answer questions like that. Um, And a number of them are my colleagues at the Cyber Policy Center, uh, particularly at the Stanford Internet Observatory. There's a lot of empirical research going on about both how disinformation flows, but also there's a lot of research um, uh, about, you know, how it affects people, (laughs) you know, who is actually sharing it. Turns out that correlates to age quite a bit. Uh, Who is believing what it says? It turns out plenty of people like to share it as a like, signifier of tribal identity, kind of, rather than because they specifically believe it's true. Um, And so I, you know, I don't have uh, my head around the whole body of that research. uh, And I think some of it conflicts. And I'm sure that, you know, studies conflict with each other. And and there's a lot more to learn. But I, I do think these foundational empirical questions about, like, is this harm we're talking about, like, is it real? How does it happen? What are the mechanics? What are the interventions? Is absolutely the right place to start. And I don't know. It's, um... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... There's an interesting political point there. Right. Which actually August brought up to me the other day (laughs) when I was asking him for help on one of my papers. Uh Yeah, well... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, all I was saying, uh, I was just making the point, and this is something I think Carl would agree with too. But uh, is that the United States has conflicting interests when it comes to regulating platforms because these are American companies, you know, and it was because of two thirty, and it was released at the time that it was, you know, in the nineties before we could see the full implications of the internet, um, and it was one of the first internet laws. And frankly, the rest of the world eventually largely followed suit, like because it's pretty much impossible to have platforms in your comp- in, in your economy, but also hold them liable for everything that is on the platform. Um, but, uh, you know, there is a conflict of interest where you'll see a lot like with from executives at Google and other big tech companies that you can't break up big tech, specifically the big platforms, because it's a national security issue, because it's an economic security issue, uh, because these are national champions that not only bring more benefits than harms to, to the American public, but our serious leverage and advantage for the United States on the global stage. I mean, look at Obama administration. Yes. that was Before we knew anything about this company. Right. You know, people were only beginning to wake up at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, which to, was the 2016 election. Which was the 2016 election, <laughs> which was Cambridge Analytica. And, you know, that's, uh, but like, yeah, like really no administration in recent memory has been cozier with big tech than the Obama administration. Um, and and so so Europe, on the other hand, doesn't have these national champions. They don't have these tech companies. Frankly, they didn't succeed in cultivating an early Silicon Valley like we did. Uh, there are probably a million different reasons for that. Uh, but one of them is stricter IP laws. <laughs> the other is, you know, they didn't have 230 when we did. 
And so we have actually probably a lot to thank for 230. I mean, this is like, this is tricky because like when you think about something like, you know, sexually, uh, you know, uh, sex, sexual abuse, uh, you know, sexually, sexual abuse content uh, online, which is, you know, depending on how you look at it, it is, it does seem to be pretty common um, on forums like, uh, like, like Reddit or even like Tumblr and, and Craigslist. Um, and then there are whole separate sites devoted to just promoting child sex, uh, sexually, uh, sex, sexual abuse material or CSAM. And, um, and so it seems like pretty obvious to us as like citizens. And this was after 2016 election too, was like, just ban it. You know, <laughs> you know, like don't let that kind of content or like misinformation, Russian, uh, you know, robotic uh, disinformation, yeah. uh, just ban it. Just don't allow it. And like once you ha have those penalties, the platforms will comply. And, and that that makes a lot of on on his face uh, a lot of common sense, which is why this is tricky, because, you know, there's a lot of like political action uh, to modify Section 230 which is that liability shield. But every single time that we've done that, it has utterly failed. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it is on the one hand, shut down websites, that chilling effect that we talked about with Keller. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, it has led to uh, content moderation policies that we still are not content with. And yet still bad information that we dislike gets through the filters. So it's just a technical problem. We talked about like maybe AI could help with this, but there are problems there that, that connect with our conversation with, with, with Daimler about like how AI itself has problems, you know, behaving consistently, fairly and transparently. And this honestly goes back also to what you were saying about like, you like you have to define like what, what these platforms are doing in order to put them in a box and put them like, hold them legally liable. And to ask the question like, what is Facebook doing? Like now that's a different question. Like now that's a different question. Like what is, Me like, what is Meta doing? Mm -hmm. Like that's a totally different company. And like, mm -hmm. what is what is Twitter? That could potentially change based on the fact <laughs> yeah. that Elon Musk is now the majority shareholder. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> they, like these, they are literally designed to be so fluid that they can just adjust to the marketplace and like become what they need to be. Maybe to not be held liable yeah. to the same standards as other traditional corporations. There's yeah. such an interesting element to this, which is you know what are the platform's goals? What are they trying to be for their users? And if your web search the goal is to show people what they were looking for. Um, and so, you know, in theory, that would mean showing everything that's legal and trying to show that, you know, that, that first 10 results, enough of a diversity of results so that if somebody who searched for Nike was really looking to buy shoes on the one hand or look for criticism of their labor practices on the other, you know, the, both of those users will find something relevant. Uh, but even web search has sort of... Um, moved into taking some things down, such as non-consensual sexual images uh, voluntarily over the years. Can I ask one question? Because, you know, this is kind of making me think content moderation itself is kind of equally as undefined as AI. When we're talking about content moderation, yeah. what are we actually talking about? Because we're clearly not upset about most content moderation. Most content moderation is terrorist content, child pornography, um, sexual abuse. So, but yet it still has this incredibly, you know, like tough political, um, social and cultural um, dimension to it that gets everyone riled up. I think myself, August and his books. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, for me personally, I, I brought this up in the interview, but my first blush of my understanding of content moderation was on gay Twitter. Um, 
all these consecrators who are quite radical, quite, you know, oftentimes speaking truth to power in my perception, they were frequently barred and taken offline. And there was this perception that this was targeted. And, you know, Kelly even acknowledged, there's some research out there, that there is a disproportionate um, enforcement of these policies. And then even more concurrent, more, more, more currently on TikTok, um, and we'll talk to uh, uh, Lip Gloss, uh, consecrated on TikTok, where there's a ton of black women who are consecrators who have the same kind of, you know, social justice or cultural justice angle. And there's a big sweep of their content. Meanwhile, there's other accounts of equal or greater size that seem to be clear and clear um, violation of these policies. So, and that's not content moderation per se, that's yeah. discrimination actually. It's, uh, it's censorship actually. I tend to think of it in the sense, like if you're gonna hold someone legally liable for something, I think, especially if it's going to be something they like should have reasonably anticipated, it needs to extend naturally from like legal sources they can understand. So I think like First Amendment speech is restricted when it's dangerous, right? Like when it poses a threat. And I, even that even extends like beyond American borders. Like I think very recently there was this case in the UK where um, a man was sentenced to like a certain number of community service hours because of like a very offensive tweet. Mm. Um, which he actually like his defense counsel said like oh he, he erased it after 20 minutes so like what are we even talking about here because it doesn't exist anymore. but like the tweet itself I think called for like violence against some like former military member but the idea being like look this posed a threat to someone mm. and so in a sense you're liable for that so like content moderation for me I think starts and encompasses calls to action maybe like Danger, dangerous information, I guess, like information yeah. that poses a dangerous threat or mm -hmm. like calls for danger. But if it's just like an opinion, mm -hmm. I kind of feel like in mm -hmm. the marketplace of ideas, it has like, even if you don't like the opinion and I might like, maybe I wouldn't like I the mean, opinion. Yeah, I just yeah. feel like it deserves to be there. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I it think gets to be there legally under the first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that there's, that's a very strong argument. I mean, I guess two points here. One, what we view as content that should be illegal changes. You know, we used to have crimes of moral turpitude where things that you said <laughs> that frankly were just offended, you know, white Protestant Anglo-Saxon people. It's funny the contradictions in American history. Yeah. They're like, First Amendment, but our history is quite complex. <laughs> like, obviously, you know, we've always had laws regulating what you can say or show about sex. Sexual abuse, yeah. obviously, is still illegal. But, um, you know, that also has changed a lot in the past where like people thought like, oh, this is offensive and gross, but it was just porn, mm. you know, and, um, you know, it's this. And the, so this leads me to the second point, which is I just want to answer this question by bringing up a case. It was a case called Smith. And this case predated 230. It was about a old, very old man, uh, immigrant, I believe, from Poland who ran a bookstore. And that bookstore eventually ended up selling a book that was deemed to violate one of these crimes of moral turpitude, essentially, uh, to be incredibly inappropriate, lewd, uh, and uh, as an aside, poorly written. And, um, and, and you know, this case ultimately went up to the Supreme Court because it was a big question. Uh, Eleazar Smith didn't obviously read every single book in his bookstore. That would be impossible. He didn't have enough life left to read all those books. And he, all his job was, was to buy books from distributors and sell them. So why should he be held responsible 
mm-hmm. for selling those kinds of things. Same thing with the clerk that actually sold the book. He's not reading this book before he sells it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it was, and people want the books, right? And, and people, people wrote the books. books. Yeah, people wrote <laughs> the books. You know, so there's obviously a First Amendment argument there. But moreover, it's just, it just seems unfair, mm-hmm. you know, to hold him liable. And you know, uh, uh, Potter Stewart, who also wrote in another case called Jacobellus, uh, that when it comes to pornography, I know it when I see it. Uh, you know, he a very classic quote, one that you can honestly imagine, you know, someone on the Supreme Court today applying that again to this very same issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but he actually wrote here that, um, uh, what, that, you know, what's more important is um, that the person should have known in some way that the, that the thing is wrong, that the knowledge <laughs> is more important, regardless of what that what is wrong or what is right, because that changes over time. But whatever ha- that happens to be at a particular time, your scienter or your, like your knowledge yeah. uh, is is the critical thing when it comes to imposing liability. And because Eliezer Smith didn't even know, was completely an innocent man, uh, you know that he was he was he was vindicated. Uh, and so so that's I guess how I would answer what is condom moderation. It is when people knowingly, at least defined under law today, when people knowingly promote or allow content that they know. Is- I have to think that like. These online platforms that at least serve as social medias, they have to know because like in their perfect world, their platform is just an extension of everyday life. And they yeah. recognize that this happens in everyday life. Right. And, and, so, the like, law like, and so for them, it's like this is a public forum. Yeah. There aren't rules for public forums like to that extent. It's kind of interesting that we just immediately go to a legal solution. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, law school. Here we are. Uh, and it's kind of to Keller's point about we're looking for these platforms to make everyone law-abiding citizens. But I think it's even further than that. We're looking for the law to make people good people. Mm. And I think even here, we need to, like, constant moderation and discourse online. We need to really be thinking, I think, more expansively than what is our actual goal. Is our goal to limit racism and limit these harms in society that get perpetuated through our, our, our speech? let's discuss hate speech and who are the people who speak hatefully, why, and what, what, in what ways makes that more amplified and more you know, online, but also in what ways makes that more amplified just in general, right. um, because we're in an era where there are, there's evidence of more hate in general, yeah. and there's also more inequality, there's also more homelessness, there's also more poverty, um, and I don't think, you know, if we, I think if we're being genuinely concerned about these issues, we're, go, we're never... We're going to look so much more broader than platforms. Yeah. Like it's, it seems disingenuous to me to put this in a small little, like you know, uh, you know, narrow understanding of this is a platform problem and platforms. Yeah. Like, and I think this makes even the transparency that we were talking about more important because we don't really know. We really don't know how much platforms and content and this new digital ecosystem are responsible for anything. We have no clue. It's a societal problem. And like the magic of the internet is that it brings together people that never would have met based Mm -hmm. on certain interests. And like, that's a good thing. And that's a bad thing. I know that like when we talked to Keller, when I asked her about like, how do we know that the 2016 election was influenced by Russian disinformation? Can anyone prove that definitively? Can anyone say that like a sizable portion of voters were persuaded by that factor alone. (laughs) It's impossible. Did they fill out a survey? Yeah. But at the same time, I will say that there is a correlation, you know, that, that, that like, as soon as we started to move on to these platforms and share information on these platforms, particularly political information, suddenly we started to get all these very strange effects, 
populist effects. I will say also, though, that, yeah, like turning to the law, which is inherently a narrow conversation, it's also will automatically limit you to sticks rather than carrots, you know, like punish Mm -hmm. rather than reward different kinds of behavior. Although we know how, you know, like UI, UX... Wait, what? Uh, UI, like uh, user, user, user interface, oh, user right. experience yeah, yeah. rewards, dopamine levels, like being online. Yes, sharing, that's true. That's absolutely liking, true. You know, and so that's more like a cor- you know, corporate platform policies. You know, mm-hmm. how are they influencing our behaviors on that level, which is not doesn't have to do with the state, at least yet. But, uh, you know, that's um, but also like with this conversation, we're not talking about the actual people who, for example, are posting child pornography. Exactly. You know, exactly. Not, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's like like my whole thing. Like when I was having this debate uh, a few months ago with our classmates, are we really addressing the right correlation? And like, why do people get dopamine from this content? I don't get any dopamine from hateful content, mm-hmm. but some people do. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, and that's like it seems like a, a question we're not really even concerned about addressing here. Like it seems like we're all it backs my conspiracy theories. <laughs> it seems like we're all just totally okay with like the fundamentally like bankrupt. Um, inability to talk across and, uh, and empathize with each other and instead of doing the hard work because it's good, it's much harder. <laughs> well, I think people, are people okay with it or do they just accept it as a necessary part of being online? And I think like you, we've been wanting to talk about like people that are like, they choose to be offline and those are the people that aren't okay with it and don't accept exactly. it as like a rule of the game that they want to play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think that there's kind of in a background assumption when we talk about regulating platforms that platforms have kind of just opened a window mm-hmm. to what is basically human nature. Yeah. That yeah. Um, that yeah. really we've always been this. Which way. people hate. People yeah. hate when and I say it, that. It's like an additional plane, like without gravity. Yeah, you know, it's like had this these platforms or something akin to it. You know, some kind of mass printing press that printed everyone's opinions back in like the 16th century. Uh, you know, we would have seen the same kind of disinformation. Maybe I don't know, but uh, I, I think that's the background assumption. I'm not sure if that's actually true. I think that platforms are influencing our, influencing our behaviors in novel ways. I think that there are other, like, for example, yeah, economic disparities that are influencing people's behavior and also just how they communicate. So we're just dealing with a very complex system. And I think that in general, when we limit our conversation to platforms, it's like out of practicality. Yeah. Because it's like, how do you, how do we start to like socially re-engineer people? Well, I, I don't even want to push back on that because I don't think it's really that, like, and on, on, on uh, I really think it's that like impractical. Like I think I'm thinking about, you know, we know empirically that hate crimes are less when the, everyone can afford their bills, and there are things we can definitely do within our body politic right now that help people pay their bills. Yeah. We can cancel student loans. Mm-hmm. We can do more for healthcare. Mm-hmm. We can do more for minimum wages. Mm-hmm. We can do more for opportunity. We can have UBI. Mm-hmm. We can do all these things in so many ways, but. I'm going to get even more conspiratorial. You know, Let's go there. we have two parties that are really concerned about Section 230 that have the power to actually address some of the broader social issues that we know empirically, without having to open up Facebook, without having to open up Twitter, limits these types of the Ill, social ills. Mm. So why are we not more so spending our energy talking about anything other than Section 230? I mean, this is <laughs> where research will come into play, which is like, how does economic hardship in affect what you believe and what you're willing to believe mm. and how you think and how you reason. And how do campaign finance laws and the lack thereof inform <laughs> our inability oh, to yeah. regulate big time? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. You know, it's all these things are connected. Yeah. Everything is connected exactly. as like a high, which is the point of this podcast. But, uh, you know, that's, this is, this is, this is a different, difficult question. 
I think there are two camps. One, if we reform the platforms, we can suddenly change the behavior of society because we've become so dependent on them for information. Mm. On the other hand, two, platforms will always be the same unless we change the behavior of society. And really, it's not a causal yeah. thing. You know, so I think that that's um, a debate. <laughs> for a later date. Um, we've actually got a coffee date. We do have a coffee date, which um, our audience will hear about soon. Exactly. So anyway, um, yeah, you know, I'm really glad we have this conversation just because I, to me, it just feels like we're focusing on symptoms and not fundamental problems. And if we're only focusing on symptoms, then we'll, we'll have a lot of work for lawyers, which is good for us, but I don't think we'll ever really solve anything um, to leave this on an optimistic note. Anyway. Sometimes you don't know something's a problem though, unless it has enough symptoms. It's true. Yeah, it's true. and sometimes symptoms are actually the problem. <laughs> Wait, when? Maybe here, maybe it's the platforms yeah. that are changing human nature. We just don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you all yet again for tuning in to the periphery. Um, hopefully, this has inspired you all to get involved, join the conversation. Um, and if you've felt so inspired, you know, leave us a question to our email at the gmail.com. Join our Patreon, support our work. Uh, we want to do so much more than we do right now. Um, follow us on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, the periphery podcast, basically everywhere. Um, and we will. As always, see you next week. Please talk to us. Catch us on all those platforms. <laughs> <Yes. laughs>